0: Hi, everyone. It's Jillian at Civic Genius, and I'm here today with Lauren Krapf, who is the Anti-Defamation League's Council for Technology, Policy, and Advocacy. And we're going to be talking about what online misinformation and disinformation look like in the real world, why what we post on social media or wherever you post things on the internet can have real consequences. Um, to quote your colleague, Dave Sifri from ADL, um, who testified about a social media transparency bill in the California State Legislature, online harm and offline violence are undeniably intertwined. And that's a big part of what we're going to dig in here today. So Lauren, thank you so much for being here.
1: Oh, I'm so happy to be here. Thanks so much, Jillian.
0: So to start off, could you just talk a little bit about what ADL does and what the organization's mission is? Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. ADL is a centuries-old organization. We were founded in 1913 with the same mission that we have today, which is to stop the defamation of the Jewish people and to secure justice and fair treatment to all. So we are the leading anti-hate organization, um, You know, really trying to forge a pass- path forward to fight hate, anti-Semitism, extremism, and really understanding the concept that you cannot fight one form of hate without fighting all forms of hate. And that's why what we see as true to our mission is to really understand that ecosystem and push back against it as much as possible.
0: Yeah. And uh, so ADL, you know, as I think you said, is one of the most established, respected organizations out there working to combat extremism, hate, harassment. Could you talk about what ADL's stake is in the issue of online misinformation and free speech?
1: Absolutely. You know, we want a robust society where people can share ideas. We think that's incredibly important uh, when individuals are being uh, shut out of spaces and unable to engage in that free and robust conversation. That's a real problem. And ADL has been a big proponent of Uh, speech and expression rights, you know, for our entire history. And we also acknowledge that in this information age and the way in which uh, information proliferates in our lives now is really different than it has been in years past, decades past, uh, and so on. And so when we look at misinformation, and um, the unique impact that it has on our systems, on healthcare, education, on the rise in, you know, hate and harassment and violence. That's something that we're, you know, really critical of and paying attention to. And we see those those concepts not necessarily as conflicting, but ones that we have to kind of hold competing truths as we move forward and ensure that we create a robust um, space, create many robust spaces where people can uh, engage, interact, and communicate, but also ensure that those spaces um, are welcome to everyone because other, you know, otherwise individual speech rights, whether or not they are speaking or trying to speak and, and unsuccessful because they're being shut out, you know, that's, that's an issue as well.
0: Right. And I should, so in the service of that, I should have asked, um, could you talk about your role and what you do at ADL, um, in, as it relates to, to that part of the mission?
1: Absolutely. I am ADL's counsel for technology policy and advocacy, which is quite a long, um, quite a long title. But essentially, my work really is at the center of our legislative policy and general advocacy work um, in three areas that all intersect. One is fighting online hate writ large. One is protecting. Um, individuals who are targets of online hate and harassment and, you know, primarily identity-based online hate and harassment. And then finally is to ensure uh, increased platform accountability and to make sure that we're holding uh, social media platforms and other players in the online ecosystem uh, accountable for their role in the increase of hate online that we've been seeing for the last several years.
0: Right. Right. Could you talk a little bit about what that looks like? What to you, what does it look like to hold um, tech companies or social media platforms accountable?
1: Absolutely, um, it looks like a little bit more than we're doing right now. It's it's a you know it's an important piece to the puzzle uh, to look at platform accountability uh, from all of the stakeholders at play. It really re- requires a whole of society a response and approach. So for platforms themselves. Of course, increasing um, the, the trust and, and safety of their platforms. So having really clear uh, terms and guidelines, being authentic and transparent in how the rules uh, that they uh, ascribe to have are being enforced, whether they're being enforced equitably and at scale, and if not, why not? Um, and then responding when individuals are Either feeling hyper targeted, and they're you know reporting those instances to platforms, or when they're feeling targeted in the other way that their um, you know comments and speech are being unfairly taken down. So being really responsive to individuals who are experiencing um, you know what they would consider mistreatment or harm uh, on the plat- on their platforms. So I think that's really important, among other things. But I'd say those are key. And then from a legislative perspective, really ensuring that our government is playing a role in ensuring that there is platform accountability and using their levers. Everything from uh, the bully pulpit, which is important to speak out when we see hate and extremism being amplified and proliferated online. And then we see the direct impact that a lot of that has on the ground. Um, In addition to reforming, you know, the the internet ecosystem. A lot of our major uh, reform mechanisms haven't been changed since 1996, and the internet looks really different. When we think about the importance of platform accountability, it really comes from a whole of society approach. Platforms themselves have a role in ensuring that their policies are really clear so that they are um, making easily understandable what are the rules of the road when individuals engage on their platform, and how are those rules being enforced? Are they being enforced equitably and at scale? When individuals are reporting that they think that there have been violations, whether or not they feel targeted, uh, or they feel that their um, you know own behavior has been unfairly uh, monitored or moderated, are platforms responding um, in a way that is comprehensive and uh, you know fair to individuals? Then you know on the government side. It's really important that government plays a role in regulating this space. You know, it's it's definitely something that has to be done very carefully. We don't want regulation to be too robust that it um, makes our online spaces over sanitized or it decreases the ability for a really important activity and behavior online organizing and expression Art, education, you know, worship—all the things that are so important generally, and that we also saw uh, become even more important in online spaces. You know, in the wake of COVID, um, and at the same time, a lot of the major regulation that uh, covered our internet ecosystem really hasn't changed since 1996. But our internet looks really different, and the way we use it is really different. And um, you know, companies that are tech focused are really different now than they were then. so it's you know ADL believes it's really important to update and modernize the uh, regulation that that covers holding platforms accountable um, you know everything from looking critically at uh, when and how platforms should be held uh, accountable in a court of law to you know should they be required to be more transparent uh, on a regular basis about their Um, content moderation policies to, you know, how are we looking at the business model that underpins a lot of the behavior um, that we see when we see the normalization of hate and extremism online?
0: Right. Yeah. And those are three. So three bullet points that could each, we could probably do an hour (laughs) on each of them. Um, I would love to hear... So you you alluded to uh, whether tech companies should be held liable for content that's on their platform. So I think referring to, we'll try not to get too wonky here. We have a whole blog post on this, but I think you're talking about section 230 of the Communications Decency Act of 1996. Is that right? Mm Yeah. So what, um, you know, there are a whole bunch of, I think at this point, the last I saw, 18 or 20 proposals, something like that, just on reforming Section 230 or getting rid of it entirely. Um, what would be your approach to Section 230?
1: So like you said, this could definitely be um, an entire, not only discussion, but a series of discussions in and of itself. But ADL thinks that reform of Section 230 is necessary to bring ourselves into the 21st century of uh, internet usage. We think that it has to be done really carefully that, you know, we say yeah, you need to use a scalpel, not a sledgehammer when reforming the laws. So we don't think that the law should be repealed. We don't think that reform should be over aggressive so that there are unintended consequences when it comes to speech or when it comes to um, what social media might look like or uh, communication might look like online. And yet, like I said, we think reform is necessary. One of the reform proposals that we have supported uh, that moved through, uh, that was introduced rather in both the House and the Senate is the Protecting Americans from Dangerous Algorithms Act. And that would hold platforms accountable when their algorithms directly contribute to acts of um, civil rights discrimination or acts of terror. So our thought is that if there is a direct line that that one can can show between uh algorithmic amplification of certain content and direct civil rights abuses or direct acts of terror that's to the point where we think that um you know accountability is is probably appropriate so you know i think that there are a lot as you mentioned of reform proposals out there i think there are a lot of um interesting and important ones to explore but our real concern here is when you can draw that direct line between uh, content that happens online and egregious unlawful uh, civil rights focused or extremist terror focused harm that happens offline
0: right yeah, and it's so to pick up on that a little bit um how do you i guess do you draw distinctions between different kinds of misinformation or and disinformation. So, you know, you can say some people would say, you know, it's not illegal to say something false on social media. We have a First Amendment right for better or worse to, um, you know, say awful, all kinds of awful things like, um, you know, peddling a conspiracy theory about who's behind the Sandy Hook shootings or you know, to say like, all, I'm making crazy stuff up, like all the powerful Jews meet at Davos and they concoct plans for the global economy or like whatever mm-hmm. kinds of bonker stuff people come up with. So are you are you kind of saying like you have like you have a First Amendment right to say those things? You don't have a First Amendment right to harass people into fear. You don't have a First Amendment right to incite violence. Is that sort of how you would describe it?
1: So we're, I'm saying a couple of things, one of which is definitely that I think that when we think about speech on social media platforms, we think about a couple of things. First is ultimately these are private spaces right now, and uh, that means that platforms can create rules and create you know uh, requirements that go beyond the First Amendment, and they have. Uh, for example, you know, platforms have outlawed, so to speak, hate speech on their, you know, on their sites, that hate speech is ordinarily, it is protected by the First Amendment, you know, of course, when it doesn't turn into a hate crime, but hate speech in and of itself is protected. And so, you know, these private companies, just like restaurants and other, you know, employers, let's say, and other spaces that are private can have rules uh, and requirements that go beyond the purview of the First Amendment, because ultimately the First Amendment is really a prohibition of government cur- curtailing somebody's speech rights. So that's the first thing we think about is that you know platforms can and we think should create an environment that they want that aligns with their ethos. And to the extent that, you know hate speech and um, you know disinformation and such is against the platform rules, we think that they should be enforced. So that's one piece. Second is what you were mentioning, which is when thinking about speech online, um, you know, there, there does need at this point, at least as far as we think, to be an increased level of nuance in what is being communicated online. Is it protected speech? Is it speech that would be unprotected, like you mentioned, like incitement to violence or um, speech that is harassing? Or is it conduct? Like cyber stalking, or like you know engaging in the act of swatting, which is calling in a false emergency to draw a SWAT team to someone's home. That's been seen as as a form of cyber abuse, or non-consensual distribution of intimate imagery. So, in looking at you know what is protected speech, what is unprotected speech, because not all speech is protected by the First Amendment, even if we're out of those private spaces. And then finally. What moves from speech to conduct online where we need to think about it differently? I think that's, uh, that's something that because we use these spaces so dynamically and every day, it's important to have that level of nuance when we think about communication online.
0: Right. So how should we think about um, something like Stop the Steal, a topic like that where, um, you know, people are contesting the results of the presidential election and the people who, for example, are saying that the election was stolen really believe that. And when platforms, um, like a lot of the big platforms have, say, no, that's not something you can post on our platform, they say, you're censoring us. This is, you know, like, this is the truth. Why, Why are you taking this down? How do you... Think about something where there's a fundamental disagreement about what I'm hesitant to say there's a fundamental disagreement about what the truth is because it's like there is and there isn't. But there are, um, you know, people who are not like wearing tinfoil hats who are saying that kind of thing. How, uh, like, could you talk about the approach to that sort of speech? Yes.
1: I think that when we look, at, that's a perfect example of taking a step back and looking at how. Uh, algorithmic amplification and how recommendations and really the way that the social media uh, business model works influences and impacts how information proliferates. So just to take a step back and then I promise I will get to exactly what you're asking is we see a lot of different information as we enter social media spaces and they are curated and recommended to us or ranked. Uh, based on algorithms. And so, you know, what I see on my newsfeed would differ from what you see on your newsfeed based on my behavior, based on what's popular, based on maybe where I live, based on a variety of different uh, metrics and pieces of information. And the reason is that, you know, platforms make money by having individuals Stay on their sites for as long as possible so that people can see advertisements and also so that their data can be uh, collected and synthesized so that advertising can be even more acute and better focused, and also so that content can be uh, more successful or go, you know, see um, can be served up to more individuals or get more eyeballs or attention. So when I think about things like Stop the Steal or other. Uh, pieces of content uh, that might be labeled misinformation, that is labeled that, um, one of the key issues is is more so about how many individuals are interfacing with this content versus who specifically is putting that content out there. Um, the content right. is highly uh, popular. It's highly provocative. It's something that people like and share and so the more and more that this content is liked or shared, then the more it's continued to be recommended based on algorithms and the more it's monetized, frankly. So mm-hmm. in in going back to your original question, I think the concern is more about reach and how much content that you know we would deem to be misinformative or even disinformative when, when content's intentionally being served up, um, you know, that is... Untrue, or that is, um, you know, has roots in in lies or falsehoods. It's really that that reach that's concerning. And just a couple of statistics that I think are really interesting. Um, There were 8,200, just about 8,200 online news articles that had the keyword "stop the steal" or the hashtag "stop the steal" between November 2020 and February 1st, 2021. But of those 8,200 articles. Uh, they had 70 million plus engagements. And wow and more than 43 and a half million in December of 2020. So if you think about the articles, right, and you think about the engagement, that is a real difference. And the difference between somebody being able to post something and something being being able to get that much airtime merely because it's profitable, that's the delta that I think we see is really important to, to focus on.
0: Right. Right. And if I, you know, posted something like that on my I was about to say blogspot, I'm not even sure blogspot exists anymore. <laughs> Tumblr, where, where, where if I just started my own, my own website and like posted it there, people could find it like the speech exists. But to your point, it's not being, it's not being amplified for profit um, by somebody who's whose goal is to be a business and be profitable um, rather than provide quality information like, a you know, traditional um, newspaper or media organization might be. You talked about, um, you know, I, I guess when we talk about what, what tech companies should be doing, I always think of the big ones like Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, I guess, Reddit, um there's all this stuff that exists on kind of smaller, fringier platforms like Gab or Parlor or I don't even, I don't know if any of the chans are still around. Yeah. Um, like, would you say, kind of speaking to your point about reach, would you say like, okay, if you're a user and you want to go there, we can't necessarily stop you from from going there and posting and consuming that kind of content, but... The business model sort of suggests that people writ large are not flocking to those kinds of platforms and they're just not getting that kind of reach. And if you can if you can um, hold the bigger platforms to actually moderating their own like uh, moderate according to their own guidelines, you could really reduce the volume on a lot of this stuff.
1: Yeah, I think, it's, I think that's right. I think that we have a couple of concerns. Listen, just because something's protected doesn't mean we think that people should be sharing it broadly. You know, you have the ability to say something and then you have, um, you know, whether or not there it, it's appropriate, whether it's harmful or hurtful. We think that a lot of the content that we see on fringe platforms is incredibly anti-Semitic and hateful. Um, so, you know, to that extent, I think that's something that, you know, I don't want to... Come away from this, not having mentioned is that we think that that is really problematic and contributes to a lot of the uh, hate that we see proliferating both online and offline. And, like you mentioned, I think one of the real concerns we have, especially when it comes to legislation and reform, is this normalization of extremism and hate. Is the fact that, you know, according to our Center on Extremism, I think over 80% of individuals who stormed the Capitol on January 6th were not associated with extremist organizations or movements. These were typical individuals who were served up uh, a diet of extremism and hate on mainstream social media. So I think we're really concerned across the board, but when it comes to... um, the impact of that normalization because the, this information or this communication matter is so profitable, that's a key concern for us. Additionally, it's important to track and understand what's going on on more fringe platforms, but also how individuals who are communicating on those platforms are using mainstream social media platforms additionally to get out their message, to you know right. recruit, to nor- to to normalize the messages that they might be ha- um you know the communication that they might be engaging in in a more uh extreme manner on these on these fringe platforms and then trying to uh, water them down to get individuals to buy into those concepts on mainstream social media yeah.
0: Yeah. And I think we saw a lot of, um, that was a kind of a QAnon tactic. I think that things would start on one platform, like start on subreddits and then make their way onto Facebook. And we sort of talk about these platforms, like they're silos, but content jumps platforms. Like I wasn't on TikTok for ages and I only ever saw TikTok videos when they jumped to Twitter where I did pay attention. Um, but there's stuff, there's stuff there. And I think this, um, I've certainly heard people talk about how all of the tech companies respond sort of piecemeal to this problem. And there's not a lot of collaboration ahead of time to say, here's what a healthy ecosystem looks like. Here are policies that we can all generally adopt and create some kind of coherent framework. It kind of seems to be like something happens in the news and then they, like one of them will, one of the tech companies jumps in to do something and then the other one's like, you know, pile on or jump in in their own way. Um, do you guys have any any interest in that kind of coordination between platforms?
1: Oh, we think it's incredibly important. I will mention, you know, twofold on that. First is the piecemeal response is both on individual platforms and in the, you know, platform community on a larger scale. So, uh, Francis Haugen, who was a face, the Facebook whistleblower um, and put forward you know, tens of thousands of documents from Facebook's uh, internal records about, you know, myths and disinformation and hate and harms to children. Uh, One of the takeaways was that the Stop the Steal content ecosystem was really looked at on an individual basis as opposed to on a broader lens of what's the general impact of this content you know, across our platform. And that was one of the reasons why the Stop the Steal content just took off like wildfire in the way that it did. So both on an individual platform, how we're looking at the content, and then of course across platforms, like you mentioned, um, I think that that coordination is is really important. I know that there's some work being done, um, like with the Global Internet Forum to Counter Terrorism, the Gift ct the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, NECMEC, about uh, that content that proliferates. And there is, you know, cross-platform, not only cross-platform coordination, but a requirement for, um, you know, for that content to be sort of regulated across the board. But to the extent that, you know, things aren't required or that it's not uh, stood up in those, in those ways, there needs to be more coordination because we, what we're seeing on TikTok is what we're seeing on Instagram, which is what we're seeing on Twitter.
0: I was wondering, so I know you, you, know, you do a lot of work on um, online harassment that manifests as a real world harm. And I was wondering if you had an example or two to really illustrate what that can look like.
1: Absolutely. I mean, when it comes to online harassment and, you know... When we talk about real-world harm, we don't necessarily only talk about the physical world because real-world harm happens online and it happens offline. We definitely have a you know a couple of specific sto- you know stories, unfortunately with too many examples that we can mention about the uh, real targeting of individuals online, but just a couple of statistics from our latest online hate and harassment survey. We put out a survey every year. To look year over year on how are individuals being treated online, um, you know, based on their identity and based on other factors, and 41% of Americans experience online harassment. 27% said they experience severe harassment, and that's the type of behavior that we would see as you know going beyond the purview of protected speech. So it's cyber stalking, it's sexual harassment, it's sustained harassment um it's you know being uh, subjected to physical threats so that level of severe harassment is 27% so a quarter people. of
0: a quarter of people basically say yeah. they experience severe online harassment that's unreal that's right.
1: and one in 3 attribute harassment at least some harassment that they experience to their identity so people aren't just being harassed i mean it's terrible across the board but they're not just being harassed because Uh, It's, you know, randomly they're being harassed because of how they pray or who they love or what they look like uh, or other immutable characteristics that, you know, are just part and parcel to who they are. And that's, you know, how they're being targeted. But, you know, I think of two individuals when I think of being targeted uh, just aggressively online and the impacts that it has offline. One is Tanya Gersh. Tanya, uh, a Jewish real estate agent from Montana, from Whitefish, Montana, was severely targeted online um, a couple of years ago with egregious anti-Semitic attacks at the direction of Andrew Anglin, who uh, was the editor of the Daily Stormer. And Mm. Anglin, you know, Tanya Gersh got on her radar and uh, got on Andrew Anglin's radar rather and um, just had troves of individuals, um, you know, send her messages, post images of her and her children with Holocaust imagery, threatened her children. Um, There were messages saying show up to her work. And so she not only was threatened online, but then, you know, her physical spaces offline were threatened as well. And she, you know, she ended up suing um, and, and one, a, a case against England, which is, which is a really hard thing to do. Um, and she, her story is one that, you know, still is with her and with so many of us today where, you know, she's just living her life one day as a, she called her, you know, she called herself a, a, a soccer mom and a real estate agent in Montana with just, you know, loving her life and her kids. And then the next day she is the target of unrelenting, uh, troll storming for months on end. Um, so that's you know that's one example and another uh, also at the hands of Andrew Anglin and the Daily Stormer is Taylor Dumpson and Taylor uh, was the first black female president of American University and you know within a week of her being uh, elected and being uh, and taking office not only did she experience hate uh, crimes and incidents on her campus like coming across bananas hanging on nooses which is just obviously awful and disgusting and racist she also experienced a barrage of online hate and harassment so much so that she you know really felt like she couldn't move around on campus she you know her 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 feeling of safety and security was completely diminished she talks about having you know lost more than 10% of her body weight, having you know, had her grades suffer. So you, know, you see what happens online and these very, very real effects of how that impacts individuals offline. Um, and then of course you see connections between online and offline behavior, like a lot of the extremist manifestos we see before individuals engage in acts of domestic terrorism uh, mass shootings, you know, we see so much of that connection, whether it's Pittsburgh or El Paso or other instances where we see online, um, behavior and activity, it's not necessarily harassment, but then it directly has, um, that correlation to offline tragedy and, and, and violence Mm -hmm. and death.
0: Right. And just to draw the line really clearly to connect those dots. There is, we, we have these just unbelievable examples that, that you're giving of hate and harassment um, online and in person. And is there, is there always a direct connection to misinformation or disinformation? Or do you see it like do you see those incidences as part of a broader world of online content that sort of traffics in misinformation and drives some of this?
1: Yeah, I think that's a really good distinction. I'm glad you brought it up. While, you know, while we're not drawing causation between mis and disinformation and online harassment and or offline violence, there it is, it's a part of this broader messaging that mis and disinformation, which so, you know, so often uh, are things like conspiracy theories or other um, types of uh, information that is rooted in some sort of discrimination or hate. You think about COVID misinformation and the targeting of the Asian American Pacific Islander community, the AAPI community, or consp- or right. conspiracy theories that are deeply anti-Semitic about Jews starting COVID-19. You know, I'm just taking COVID there. There are so many um, different lines of mis- and disinformation that have roots in hate. And then that can create an environment where hate is normalized and accepted or at least questioned. And then that creates the space for an individual to you know, engage with that hate, to act on it, to target others. Um, so it really does contribute to the environment. Again, not gonna go to causation here, but the correlation I think is, is undeniable.
0: Right, right, that's unbelievable. Um, I wanted to ask you if you have just a second to go back to some of the policies that you think could improve this situation. So we talked about things the federal government can do. We talked about the many things that tech companies can do. They're kind of self-regulating right now. And, you know, it seems a little hit or miss um, Mm -hmm. with how that goes. Are there things that... I always like when, when we could talk about solutions that feel closer to home. Um, yeah. Are there things at the state level that you think we could be doing? Absolutely.
1: I think that there are a lot of things we can be doing. You, you know, you mentioned a couple of options and uh, the reality is this is, and I mentioned this earlier when it comes to platform accountability, but I think it really also uh, comes into play when we think about online hate and harassment. It is whole of society, it is whole of government because it's such a big issue and we haven't been, um, while we've been paying attention to it, we haven't been acting uh, and improving the the environment as much as we should and need to be. Um, At the state level, ADL is working on a transparency bill in California that would require platforms to um, put out regular transparency reports about their content moderation policies so that's something that we think is really important we have also been running for several years now our backspace hate campaign which is a campaign to update gaps and loopholes in the law when it comes to cyber stalking and doxing which is putting someone's information online with the intent that it be used for an unlawful purpose or swatting, which i mentioned earlier There are a lot of these behaviors that we would, you know, confidently say are unlawful, but the law has gaps um, where there's an inability to really robustly protect individuals from being targeted. So updating those laws, um, you know, increasing transparency at the state level, I think ensuring that, um, you know, law enforcement agencies have the right tools to be able to adequately investigate Cyber incidents to determine if there is a connection to offline, to determine if there is something unlawful going on. Um, I think better transparency, you know, pushing for better transparency um, and access to data for researchers so that researchers can, you know, have um, the right tools to be able to help us understand these spaces that are, you know, changing and evolving, but at the same time, their impact is so. Uh, robust and acute that we need, we need, we need that, we need that help, Um, you know, to tie it all together because it really is it's equal parts piecemeal and holistic. Um, ADL has our, you know, theory of change, which is our repair plan that we think that, you know, the internet needs repairing and that we, we need to look at multiple different facets, whether it's platform accountability, whether it's transparency, Whether it's, you know, looking at the social media business model or advocating more for targets of harassment, all of that together is really what we can do at the local, state and federal level.
0: Right. Yeah. And that makes it makes a lot of sense to me because your point, um, you know, your point that this is uh, this like information just flows in a really different way than it has for most of history and, and the idea that there's, um, there's kind of one quick fix to it um, doesn't doesn't quite ring. So yeah, I appreciate all the different levers that we could be thinking about pulling um, as we address this issue. Um, one more thing I wanted to ask you is ADL has written about um, what I think is, is an interesting idea um, that platforms, that tech companies, social media platforms should create off ramps for people who are on the path to radicalization. And I wanted to ask you what that might look like.
1: I think that, um, you know, that goes back to what support are we providing to individuals on platforms? And so when it comes to, you know, off-ramping individuals uh, from going down the rabbit hole towards extremism, um, or it comes to other, you know, trying to, push back against other problematic behavior one of the ways that we you know think about um how platforms might be able to better support that piece to the puzzle is by implementing product changes by putting in friction by making it a little harder for individuals to you know go down that path whether it's you know some um stopping uh you know, autoplay or stopping certain recommendations mm-hmm. or ensuring that mm-hmm. um, recommendations are based solely on search, whether it's something like if somebody, you know, this goes a little bit further from your question, but I think it's really important to mention is, you know, if somebody is sharing mis or disinformation that might impact other individuals. Um, and they're sharing it widely, can they get a pop-up message saying, are you sure you want to share this? Or if they're sharing an article, mm-hmm. have you read this? You know, is it, are you sure you want to, um, you know, post that some, you know, sometimes just a little bit of friction can go a long way. Um, and, you know, we we're, we're being tracked. Uh, pretty robustly um, online anyway. You know, the phrase that if you're not paying for it, you are the product definitely rings true. Right. Um, and in light of that, there's an awareness of our behavior and of our interfacing. And so um, to the extent that there can be pushback or a little bit of friction or a little bit of, um, you know, slowing down of the process of being wrapped up in these uh, spaces and, and especially when they go towards problematic movements, I think that that's something that can be done.
0: Yeah, I it's it's so true. I think um, like just understanding more just to your earlier point about transparency and then to your point just now about slowing down and stopping. I know just from having spent a lot of time with this topic lately and really understanding how the algorithms work and all of the behavioral things that are part of the user experience that make me want to click or read or share something just my like as an individual being more aware of that I know has changed my behavior. Um, so some of those other things that are more visible and more widespread, I, I think, um, I have no data on how effective those are, but it, I would intuit that, um, that they could be really effective potentially. Um, is there anything else that you think we should know about your work or this topic or your work on this topic?
1: It's just such an, it, it's really such an important space. Um, I think that the impact that social media has on our lives, um, you know, if, if, we, if we were asked the question, does Facebook have the power to change elections in 2006 or 2010 or 2012, we might laugh and say, what are you talking about? This is, just, this is a space where I get to, you know, post cat videos or, you know, like my niece's graduation post or, you know, something along those lines. And now that's a completely legitimate question. So I think really thinking about that impact and you were mentioning it, just having an increased level of awareness of how these spaces operate, what are their, what is their influence on our lives? um, I think that's incredibly important. I think being really critical about how this business model of, pushing out information that is really engaging and optimizing for that engagement so users stay on platforms for as long as possible to see advertisements and to give more data. I think it's really important to think about that because when an individual is sharing a piece of content, let's say mis or disinformation, if I'm sharing something, whether I agree with it or whether I'm outraged about it, it doesn't matter. That doesn't make a difference to an algorithm. Either way, right. that's being seen as highly provocative and popular, and that means it's gonna be amplified further. So just knowing, you know, having increased digital literacy, how is my behavior online contributing to the environment? I think that's you know something to, to think about and also you know being cognizant that yes, these are spaces where we definitely wanna keep um, authentic and exciting and robust conversation alive. And yet we don't have to have the false choice between spaces where people can feel supported and safer and um, and that, you know, their ability to move throughout the space isn't being compromised, um, you know, or or monetized to the point of, you know, feeling unsafe or feeling like hate or racism or extremism is being normalized. Um, you know, we can keep spaces that are robust and we can also Increase protections for victims and targets of harassment, and we can, you know, ensure that algorithms aren't, um, you know, contributing to a normalization of extremism. We can do all of those things. Not perfectly, of course, but I don't think we have to throw our hands up and say, you know, the only way to get um, free you know, free speech on the internet is by letting the status quo remain as is.
0: But this was great. I really appreciate your time. Great. Thank you so much, Jillian. I'm happy to be here and discuss these important issues.